your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome, everyone, and a special guest coming up today. As you probably know, I'm a big fan of Houdini. Uh, of course, uh, he is a representative of magic. And you mentioned the name of Houdini, and of course, people right away think of, of magic. I've spoken about uh, Harry many times on the show. I've written a lot about him. But today, we have a special guest. There are not many people remaining of Houdini's family. And George Hardeen is his grandnephew. George's father was Houdini's brother. And uh, after 3.15, we're going to chat with George, uh, who not only is a relative of, of Houdini, but who has put together a marvelous TV program on, uh, on his great uncle. So that is uh, uh, coming up. Obviously, we're still dealing with the uh, COVID problem, and we will be dealing with this for, unfortunately, quite some time. Never, uh, in, uh, certainly in my history, has so much effort gone into solving a problem with so little outcome. There are thousands of papers that have been published already on COVID-19, various aspects, and yet we hardly know more about it than we did at the beginning. We're not exactly sure how it's transmitted. We don't really have any good treatments, although there, there are some uh, treatments out there that show a little bit of hope, like remdesivir and some of the uh, steroids, like mexobethazone. Uh, but um, I think proper vaccines are quite a bit off. Uh, I think even Dr. Fauci, I think, is overly optimistic about uh, when we're going to see some uh, some vaccines. So we struggle on with this um, uh, situation. And uh, let's just talk for a moment about a link between the ancient Phoenicians who inserted shavings from their bronze swords into battle wounds. And uh, there's a link, believe it or not, between that process and a component of some masks that are being sold today with claims of offering extra protection against COVID-19. What is that link? Well, the link is through a metal. That metal is copper. Okay, let me tell you a little story here. Uh, why would anyone want to insert a copper wand into their nose? The claim by the producers of Copper Zap, which is exactly that. It's a little handheld copper wand. And the claim is that by massaging the nostrils for 60 seconds with this uh, metallic piece of copper, you can zap the living daylights out of any bacteria or viruses that have infiltrated the nasal tissues, and uh, thereby you can reduce your chance that these will multiply and cause disease. Furthermore, it is said that small amounts of copper ions will be left behind to prolong the protective effect. When this zapper was first marketed a few years ago, it targeted the rhinoviruses that cause colds and maybe the influenza virus. I mean, that's what we were concerned about back then. But now with COVID-19, bloggers began to hype it as offering protection against the disease Although I must say that the manufacturer of the copper zap uh, did not make such a claim, or at least I never saw. 
But the Copper's App website now has been stripped of all information. All that you can find there now is the message that this device, which used to be sold for $69.95, is no longer available. I'm not sure exactly what is going on there, whether it is really that it's no longer available, although that's hard to imagine because copper is not a rare metal. So there must have been some reason that they took this down, probably because uh, somewhere along the line they were accused of making uh, unsubstantiated claims. But anyway, this idea of um, you know massaging the inside of your nose with a copper rod Sounds like the usual snake oil claim, you know. Uh, I mean, sounds magical. But you know what? There actually may be something to this, although not very much. It is the usual technique used by overly enthusiastic marketers to blow a kernel of scientific fact out of all proportion. Copper does have antimicrobial properties something that was discovered empirically long be before microbes were even known. The Smith Papyrus, an ancient Egyptian medical text, this dates somewhere between 2600 and 2200 BC. It describes treating chest wounds with copper, and as I said, the ancient Phoenicians reportedly inserted shavings from their bronze swords into battle wounds. Bronze, of course, is an alloy of copper and tin. Today, the antimicrobial properties of copper are well established. Elemental copper has a single electron in outer orbit, and that electron is easily removed. And that then leaves behind positively charged copper ions. And these, we now know, can throw a wrench into the multiplication of bacteria and viruses by interfering with the structure of their genetic material. Furthermore, this lost electron can be absorbed by oxygen to form something called superoxide, a highly reactive species, and this can destroy microbes. This is why copper surfaces, such as on uh, intravenous posts that you see in, in hospitals, the, these posts that hold the uh, intravenous fluid bags, on armrests, on chairs, bed frames, and the tables that they roll over the bed in hospitals, uh, these uh, are in some cases being manufactured with surfaces of copper, at least in hospitals where this can be afforded because uh, copper is not a cheap uh, metal. But it has been shown quite con conclusively that these copper surfaces reduce hospital-acquired infections. And that's because bacteria and viruses uh, do not survive well on a copper surface. Well, these surfaces, of course, do destroy the microbes, as I said. They do not do so instantly. Significant contact time is required. It is most unlikely that a 60-second massage of the nose tissues will do anything at all. But the fact is that that hasn't been really studied, so it cannot be totally ruled out. But so far, there's no evidence that was provided by the manufacturer uh, for this, you know, sixty-nine ninety-five piece of, of copper uh, to have any kind of benefit. And of course, if, if this really would work, uh, you still would not need to buy this thing because you can just buy a little piece of copper. You can buy that on, on the internet. You can actually buy it from, on Amazon. Or you can just go get a little 
bit of copper wire and formulate it into a, a wand. Uh, but uh, I think that the effectiveness is likely to be the same as that of wearing a copper bracelet to treat arthritis, which basically is, is none. Now, the reason that uh, I mention all of this is because there are some masks that are now being sold that have been uh, either infused with some copper compound, like copper oxide, or where the uh, material of which the mask is made, which may be cotton or polyester or polypropylene fibers, those fibers are intertwined with very, very thin fibers of copper. And the, the claim here is that uh, this provides added benefit uh, in terms of inactivating the virus. Well, I think that that is true as long as there is sufficient contact time with the virus. It is not going to stop the virus from going through the mask. However, if the mask on the outside does get somehow uh, coated with virus, if someone has coughed on it or sneezed on it, you know, uh, I think that virus on the mask is not likely to survive because of the copper inside. So that the next time that you put that mask on, it is likely not going to be contaminated with, uh, with the virus. Whereas if you take an ordinary cloth mask and it gets contaminated, uh, if you put it on a couple of hours later, uh, the virus will still be there and you could have touched the virus and then touched your face. These uh, copper-laced masks cost 50 to $70, but they are supposedly uh, washable. But nobody really has shown any clinical evidence of efficacy. But you cannot totally rule it out. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and then be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Now I'd like to welcome a special guest, George Hardeen. And uh, George uh, joins us from Arizona. Hi, George. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. Well, this should be fun. And before we get down to the uh, subject at hand, which of course is Houdini, uh, your great uncle, uh, given that you're in Arizona, I have to ask you how you're doing down there with COVID. I'm doing really good. I live on the Arizona-Utah border, and most of the COVID cases are in the Phoenix area, which is about a five-hour drive from me, about 250 miles. The Navajo Nation, which is directly east of me, is also suffering greatly, uh, but they are um, in implementing weekend curfews, and that includes all stores closed, all gas pumps are closed. So they are taking all actions that are being recommended and doing a good job at containing it. But me, myself, I am completely healthy because I am social distancing. I wear a mask every time I go into any store, and... Uh, limiting the the numbers of people that I come in contact with. Well, good, good, because uh, Arizona seems to be a hotspot these days, right? It is. It yes, is. it is. All right. Well, let's get down to, to history. Uh, Harry Houdini, uh, arguably the greatest magician who ever lived. I, I say arguably because his magical talents were not as great as his uh, self-promotion talents, but he certainly was the escape artist extraordinaire, and he did more for magic than anyone else has, has ever done. Uh, his name is synonymous with, with magic. 
Um, Harry came from a, a family. He was an immigrant from uh, Hungary, uh, although he never liked to admit that. He always maintained he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. He didn't think that uh, being an immigrant was to his advantage in terms of, of uh, publicity. Uh, there were five Houdini children, brothers, and uh, one of those brothers was your grandfather, who was uh, Theo, uh, Dejer, as he was called in uh, Hungarian, and uh, later on they called him Dash, right? Uh, but Correct. Then, but then he himself became a magician, and uh, essentially, uh, at least in in the public eye, uh, uh, was a competitor with uh, with Houdini. So let, let's get down to when you first found out who your grandfather was. When was that about? Well, to my best recollection, I think I was about nine, ten, maybe as old as eleven years old. My sister found a letter addressed to my dad, but it was not addressed the way it usually is, Mr. Harry Hardeen. It was addressed Mr. Harry Houdini Hardeen. And so my sister asked my dad, what's this all about? And it was at that time that my dad told us, explained to us, that Houdini was in fact our great uncle and how that was so through our grandfather. And that's when I found out that uh, Houdini was related to us. I asked my dad, why didn't you tell us before? And his response was, he didn't want me running out into the street and telling my friends, I'm related to Houdini, because he didn't think anybody was going to believe me. And so he wanted to just spare me that disappointment. And so he did. So I did not go out and tell everybody I was related to Houdini, and um, I really did not uh, revel in that fact until maybe beginning 10 years ago. And I am now 68 years old. Did, so, did you ever meet um, your grandfather? No, no. He died in 1945, and I was born in 52. Okay. Yeah. So, so how was the interest then rekindled? Uh, being, being interviewed. Um, my dad d didn't trust uh, the writers who were writing about Houdini because when he was interviewed, they would n not report accurately, and that frustrated him long, long before this whole concept of fake news. It, it had nothing to do with that. Um, you know, my dad was trained as a lawyer, so getting things right was important to him, and he was just frustrated, so he basically gave it up until – a magician from Detroit, who you may know or heard of, John Oliver, oh, sure. contacted him and, um, and did an interview with my dad and shared with my dad what he wrote before he published it. And my dad, his whole attitude changed. And because his did, he influenced me and mine did. And so years later, after my dad died, um, when when friends began to realize I was related to Houdini, um, the next thing I knew, um, I was being asked for interviews. And of course, when email was invented, that's when the requests started also coming in too. So that is what rekindled my interest in Houdini. Um, it began with an NPR interview done my, by my friend Dan Crocker, who works out of Duluth, Minnesota right now. Um, or, or I should say... Um, that, yeah. that, that's when you started reading about him historically? Oh, and... no, 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 no. I, I had read about him, 
But this is when I was doing interviews and talking about them. Okay. And then, of course, um, um, in 2018, we did the Science Channel show called Houdini's Last Secrets, and that was a lot of fun. And, you know, that was a four-episode four show, and that was TV. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've watched and, those episodes, and they're, they're, they're really outstanding. And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, they... Uh, uh, you did just a wonderful job in, in trying to reproduce some of Houdini's effects. and uh, It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it was kind of fun. And, you know, there was a lot of guesswork going on, and it probably was not up to Houdini's standards, but it was good enough for, for what we were trying to do. And the magician that we had, Lee Terbosik, he is a full-time working magician. He says the only job he has ever had is magic from the time he was 13 years old. Um, he got his degree in marketing, specifically to promote uh, his magic career. And so this is what Lee does. And he is a phenomenal magician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but he travels all over the country. Um, and he's, you know, he's my good buddy. Well, this, uh, this show, four episodes were on the Science Channel. And uh, they can still be found, right, for people who, who subscribe to that channel? Oh, yeah. If, if you have a subscription to Science Channel... Um, you, you can access this. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if in Canada we have the Science Channel. We, we have a number of, of science-oriented channels, but I don't know if we have one that's that specific one. I, I don't know. I'd have to ch check that. But, uh, it's aired in Europe a couple of times. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, all four episodes are, are really great, and of course there are uh, some uh, fascinating historical uh, connections there. Anyway, I want to chat a little bit more about uh, you know uh, your relationship to your uh, uh, great uncle and what what you may have learned about him on the inside that that uh, some of us may not know. But uh, we got to take a little bit of a break here because we have to to pay some bills and with commercials, and uh, also we have to check the news. So I'm gonna. Okay. I ask you to hold on just for a few minutes here, and we'll get back to uh, talking about some uh, interesting facets of uh, perhaps the uh, most famous entertainer who ever lived, and that was, of course, Harry Houdini. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. My special guest today is uh, George Hardeen, whose grandfather was Harry Houdini's brother. And we're going to chat uh, about his uh, great uncle and uh, some of the memorabilia that may be around. But, uh, George, first I want to ask you, uh, how many other members of the uh, Weiss family are, are still left? Weiss, of course, was the family name. Uh, Houdini officially changed his name to uh, Harry Houdini. And obviously your grandfather uh, changed his name officially to Hardeen because that's your family uh, name. Uh, how many uh, other relatives still uh, are around? Well, that's a good question. I don't know how many Weisses or Vices there may be, but um, I did go to uh, Budapest, Hungary for the first time in 2017. And before I went, I wrote to the big newspaper over there, told them who I was, told them I was interested in meeting more Vices, and they said, there are just too many, they can't help me. So I didn't get any help there. Um, what about I, your end? Yeah, your end. Yeah, as far as I know, um, it is just my sister and me who have a blood relationship to um, 
Houdini through my grandfather. Uh, but there are other people, specifically the Blood family, who are related to Houdini's wife, Beth. Right. Um, now, there were, but, five, there were five wise brothers. So and, besides... and I am not, I'm not in contact with any of those family members, but I very much would like to be. If, if I could do that. But do, I, do you know whether I, or not the, the three other brothers, aside from Harry and your grandfather, did they have children? I don't know. I should, but I don't. Yeah, that would be interesting to track down to see if there are yeah, other living I, I would uh, love it members. if somebody could give me some help, maybe someone listening to the show. Uh, they can go online and, and do that. Um, but I have not done it. I would love to do it. Um, and uh, maybe the next time you interview me, I can tell you who all yeah. my relatives are who I have found. Okay, let's get down to talking about the TV show that you did, the four-episode show. Uh, how did that come about, and what was your view on you know, why this should be done and what would be accomplished? So, given the fact, of course, that there have been innumerable books and, and shows about uh, Houdini. Well, like... So many other times, it started with an email, and it took two years for the show to work its way through development, be um, bought by the Science Channel, which is part of the Discovery Channel, and filming to begin. And, and that happened in the fall of 2018. And I went to Austin, Texas, because we were using um, one of them, Steve Wolf has a ranch, which he calls the Stunt Ranch. Steve is a special effects expert. He's a scientist. He is a builder. He can build practically anything overnight. And so he built our apparatus, the uh, water torture cell, um, the apparatus for the bullet catch, um, uh, the caret, and buried alive, uh, which was probably our biggest apparatus that he to build and make work so that Lee could be buried alive and escape alive. Now the um, most famous so the most famous Houdini illusion was the uh, well maybe not illusion escape was the Chinese water torture upside down was, uh, escape. Right. And you cre recreated that based on what what you and your your uh, colleagues thought was a likely way that this was constructed because right. No one actually knows, right? There were no blueprints of the original uh, construction, which actually I, re that... I remember seeing that in uh, the Niagara Falls Museum before uh, that burned down. Uh, right. It was there, and I remember seeing it there. And then there were other reconstructions. Johnny Gone uh, did a reconstruction of it, and then you did the reconstruction. And, of course, the secret is in, in, the, in the footstock, right? Right, and, and, that's right. And uh, so, uh, I mean, in terms of your guess, I mean, how close do you think you are to the way that Houdini really did it? <clears throat> well, it probably was not built as finely and with the craftsmanship that Houdini's was built um, because we built ours in a matter of days. Um, but... It probably came pretty close to how he was released. It, you know, there was the illusion that he was actually being locked in there, but he was able to escape. But there's a couple other things that are very critical to that. Number one, it's not a very big enclosure. So he needed to be flexible enough, which he was, 
to be able to turn around and come up head first after he has been lowered head down. Lee had never done this trick before, so he had to figure out how he could do it. We, as you see in the TV show, uh, we, we built a plywood box and put that into a swimming pool. We always had an EMT on hand ready to rescue Lee if something went wrong. And we did have a couple pretty interesting mistakes take place. Uh, but Lee had to practice flipping around inside that tight container. And when he did it in, in a plywood box, the plywood did not have much slide to it. He didn't, he didn't slide against the wall the way he did in, in the glass box that we had built. That was much easier. Uh, but he figured it out. He was able to do it. He's very athletic. And um, so he was able to do it after basically um, practicing for a day. Uh, we did hire a former marine diver to teach him how to hold his breath and not panic which is very important. Um, and so we were able to do it. So um, it's, it's difficult to know exactly how Houdini built his and how close we were. But once Lee escaped, got his feet loose, then the rest was just the same way Houdini did it. Yeah. Turn around. And I think it's important, to, it's important to point out that while, of course, there was gimmickry in, in how you get out of the, the stock, it nevertheless, it, I mean, it took great physical agility and, and breath-holding in order to pull off this stunt. So yeah. it, it was still a, a tremendous accomplishment. Although these days, yeah. I think, uh, to present this on the stage, you know, with having the audience sit there listening to music for half an hour while, you know, he supposedly struggled to get out, which, of course, he didn't struggle for half an hour. That was just for added effect. He got out relatively quickly. But I don't think these days you could sell that to an audience to be sitting there looking at a close curtain waiting for uh, the artist to appear. But in those, that was a different era. It was a different era. And as you probably know, Houdini loved technology. I mean, he flew an airplane, one of the earliest pilots that there was. And and he experimented with an X-ray machine. Imagine what he would be able to do with the technology that we have today. Oh, he and would love is, it. He would love it. This is what I think David yeah. Copperfield and David Merlini in Hungary are doing. They are using today's technology to pull off these huge illusions. Yeah. Um, Incidentally, Copper, Copperfield has a, a Johnny Gons replica of the water torture uh, chamber. Which, he does. which is difficult to see. <laughs> I mean, he will let special people see it, but it's not an open uh, museum. But uh, right. he, he has a lot of Houdini memorabilia. And there's a lot of Houdini memorabilia around the world because Houdini was, was a, a fanatic about collecting things. He uh, was. Especially newspaper articles about himself <laughs> and anything anything written about him, but magic apparatus, uh, you know, so the and handcuffs. And also I think yeah. we should say that most of the escapes that he did with handcuffs and straitjackets were totally legitimate. He was an expert locksmith, like you said. He 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 was a fan of technology. So he knew all about locks, and he was able to to pick them. I mean, on some occasions, he did use gimmicked uh, devices, but most of the time, it was all legitimate. Anyway, George, we've got to take another short break here. Can you stick with us for a couple of minutes more? 
I sure can. Okay, Thank you, hang on. We're uh, speaking with um, George Hardeen, uh, whose grandfather was uh, Harry Houdini's brother. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. On the line with me from Arizona is George Hardeen, who, along with his sister, are the only known living relatives of uh, Harry Houdini. Uh, George's grandfather was uh, Harry Houdini's brother, uh, Theo, who performed as Hardeen and had a traveling magic show just like uh, Harry. And uh, they sort of competed with each other, at least in the public eye, although, of course, they were very friendly at each other. And we're uh, just talking before about memorabilia, and people collect all kinds of things from, from Houdini. And so uh, I'm just wondering what you you would have uh, as memorabilia. Is there anything that you've uh, had handed down from your grandfather? I have two items. One is a big poster board that is advertising my grandfather. And the other is a first edition book signed by Houdini to his brother, um, Magician Among the Spirits. Oh, the, yeah. I mean, that's a great book. That's a Houdini yeah. classic. And a signed, yeah. a signed version of that, of course, would be great. Uh, now, yeah. I know that, that when Harry died, and uh, he died relatively young, age of 52 in 1926, he left a lot of his uh, magic apparatus to your grandfather. Yes. And where did that, that eventually end up? Well, one of my grandfather's protégés was Sid Radner, who lived in Holyoke, Massachusetts. So Sid had the bulk of the Houdini apparatus. And he placed that in the Houdini Museum in Appleton, Wisconsin. And going back a few years, probably the early 2000s, the museum wanted to show the public how Houdini did his tricks and did his escape. Sid was opposed to that, as were magicians all over the country. Uh, but the museum had every intention to go ahead and, and do that. It led to Sid removing those items, and that is what went on on auction. I think it was in 2004 in Las Vegas, and that's when David Copperfield was able to acquire the water torture cell. And so this immense collection um, was at that point then dispersed around the world. Yeah, I think there's some in the Smithsonian in Washington uh, also on display, oh, some of his Yeah, some of his I, I mean, there's collectors, yeah. there's collectors, everywhere and uh you know there's houdini exhibits going on often um different places even traveling uh, oh yeah i mean i saw the one that was originally at the jewish museum in uh, in new york that's Uh, right and i saw it when it was in baltimore yeah excellent uh traveling uh, exhibit there also uh are some uh, houdini artifacts in in new york at the phantasma magic store which oh, yeah. which is and, also sort of a small Houdini museum, and it's right. cer- certainly worthwhile to go and see stuff. Now I know that you've been pictured with that classic photo, in which uh, Harry is there with Bess and with his mother, uh, the threesome. And yeah, yeah, is the the picture that you have? I, I guess that's a blown up picture of the original, right? Where that that's 
that's part of the exhibit that you just mentioned. That's in New York, eh? That's in New York. Well, that happened to be yeah. in Baltimore at that time. Okay. But do you know and where I the where the original of that picture is? I don't. That was the very first time I saw that. Yes, it obviously was enlarged. Yeah. And um, I asked one of the cameramen, a guy named Michael Koskin, who I teased. I called him my personal camera operator because he ended up shooting me a lot when we were making the show. He took my cell phone and took that photo, and um, I like that picture a lot. Oh, yeah. It's a great and great photo. Anyway, and imagine, uh, yeah. Im imagine this about that photo. That photo was taken uh, when Houdini was still a young man. So it was probably the 19-teens at some point. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, he was... Photographs were very stoic. Right. People right. did not smile. And look how playful Houdini was with his arms around the two women of his, of his life. I just love that photo for that reason. He's just such a playful guy. Yeah, that was a very interesting relationship he had with his mother. It was, uh, I mean, he was obviously very, very close to his mother. He would write her letters all the time. And whenever he came back to New York, he would go to her before he'd go to Bess. So it was sort of a touch of a bizarre relationship there. Anyway, yeah. let, let me get back to the uh, the show that, that you did, where one of the episodes is on the bullet catch, which is probably the most dangerous trick ever performed uh, by illusionists. And... Um, uh, there are people who have died, of course, trying to do that. The, the best version I've ever seen is the Penn and Teller version. And uh, I, I know mostly how Penn and Teller do everything, but I do not know how they do the bullet catch. I don't know if anyone knows. Uh, it is such a brilliant uh, performance. But I guess you can do that when you have a theater built to your purposes. But uh, with with Harry and the bullet catch, I mean, this, this was not one of his favorite uh, uh, effects. And at one point, he vowed that he would never do it, right? So yes. uh, is is there evidence that he actually did it? You know, that's one of the questions that we asked. And we we really couldn't answer the question. You know, he had been asked not to do that by other magicians. And so we we don't have a record of him actually doing that because I believe the number is 12 magicians who died doing doing the bullet catch for for you know misfiring absolutely things things mistakes. can go wrong yeah yeah th things that were not planned for went wrong and obviously this was Houdini's era so he um, you know he prepared I, I once asked my dad how did my grandfather and Houdini do what they did. And he said, knowledge and preparation. They worked at what they were doing, but they were prepared to do it. Houdini probably knew how dangerous the bullet catch was. He didn't need it. And so he opted not to do it. Even though he was planning to do Buried Alive um, on stage, in 1927 and as you know he died in 1926 but he had the the posters already printed up and they were found after his death he did have a bad experience in california with the buried alive trick he almost suffocated with in dirt so he had to figure out how to perform buried alive that is something he figured out 
But the boa catch, we didn't find very much information about that regarding him. Is there anything you found out in all of your work with, uh, uh, about Houdini that surprised you? Yeah, yeah. This whole theory about whether he was a spy in Russia. Right. Um, yeah. y you know, the, the, the Bill Kalush book um, proposes the fact that he was a spy, um, but that is inconclusive. One of the people we interviewed in the show was John McLaughlin, who was the deputy director of the CIA. He had a career in intelligence. He was a great interview. I really liked meeting him. And he's been a magician since he was a kid, so he loves magic. But we asked him, if, if you had the opportunity to hire somebody like Houdini today, would you do it? And he said, yes, because Houdini was the kind of guy who could mingle with anybody, who would see all kinds of stuff, hear all kinds of conversations, and perhaps tell somebody something that might mean something. But we don't know specifically whether Houdini actually did this. But he was a Jew in Russia at a time that was illegal. And he was welcomed to the, at the highest level in Russia. He was treated as an honored guest. And so he, he had amazing access. Germany, too, uh, before the war, he had amazing access. Well, he so was an amazing was man. He was an amazing was, man, and right. uh, you know he was uh, at that time the most famous entertainer in the world. He is still right. one of the most famous personalities in in, in the world, and uh, his fame seems to grow uh, year by year. There are more and more people who are interested in reading about him, in watching uh, shows about him, and hopefully, uh, people will now. Look to the Science Channel and look up your four episodes, which are really great. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. But uh, maybe we have stimulated someone to look into the family history, and maybe there is some other Weiss offspring out there who may come to the surface. So, George, that would be great. George, thanks so much for speaking with us and for uh, rekindling some of those great memories of Hardeen, Harry Houdini's brother. Thanks a Joe, lot. Joe, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's it. We have run out of time. Hopefully we were able to get your mind off this uh, COVID-19 business for a while with a little bit of entertainment. And we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.